Now, you've heard me say uh, many times during the study that uh, our culture uses the title God in a very generic sense. You can, you can go do some man-on-the-street interviews. You can interview ten people and uh, ask what they think about the term God, and you'll probably get ten uh, varying answers, ten radically different answers concerning what people's conception of God, uh, the title God, is. So one reason I appreciate the names of God's studies because this helps us to go beyond the generic use of the term God and look at the God of the Bible. So when we talk about God, we're talking about a specific God, the God of the Bible, who has revealed some things about himself. We're talking about the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who sent his son Jesus to this earth, the God that has given us his um, word. And so that's the God we're talking about. And this God's a specific God, not a generic God. And you say, wait, what's the one true God like? Well, these names reveal to us what he is like, what his character and nature consists of, and what that means for you and for me. So that's one reason I appreciate this study. Now, before we uh, jump in, just by way of announcement, don't forget... Uh, we've got a busy uh, weekend coming up. Uh, Friday night is Secret Church right here in this room. We're bringing in David Platt through simulcast. And uh, many churches are doing this all over the, the, uh, all over the nation. And uh, he'll be teaching uh, on uh, end times uh, uh, theology. And so you want to be here for that. He talks about end times and the glory of God. Uh, David Platt's a pastor of a church in Birmingham, Brook Hills Church. And a uh, gifted teacher. He's an author. And we've done Secret Church here the last few years, and it's a, basically a six-hour Bible study. It's intense, it's fast, it's, you get a little booklet and a pen, and it's, it, when he starts, it is on, and it is fast. Who's been in Secret Church before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons they call it Secret Church is to increase awareness of the persecuted church throughout the world. The term Secret Church reminds us that many Christians have to meet secretly, you know, like two in the morning in a barn. So they are not uh, captured and arrested by the oppressive government uh, under which they live. And so throughout the study of end times, uh, there will be periodic moments where you learn some things about the persecuted church throughout the world and pray for your brothers and sisters in, that are living in difficult areas of the world. So it's, a, it's an encouraging time, uh, a faith-strengthening time, and so I hope that if you can be here, you'll be here. It's it's just it's just five just five dollars a person that pays for your book. We'll have some snacks and stuff here for you. So if you can if you can make it from six to midnight, I think last year we got done about twelve thirty at night or in the morning. So you can if you can make it, then uh, it'll be a good study um, for you. So just want you to be aware of that. And then Saturday is our first Easter service, uh, six p.m. right here in this room. Our Saturday night service the past few years has been just packed, and so we expect a big crowd on Saturday night. So you may want to come to that service. And then on Sunday morning, we'll have three uh, services, 8, 9, 30, 11, our normal schedule. And we expect a big crowd then. And so if you are uh, plan on being here, uh, we hope you'll pick a service to, to worship in, then a service to work in. There'll be no, be no connect groups on Sunday. And so if you could, you know, uh, help out greeters, ushers, security, you know, parking lot, uh, children, preschool, uh, just talk to some of our staff. And, and, and if there's an, a need, they'll get you plugged in if you can help it in a service that you're not actually attending with your family. So uh, we're excited. We expect a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of visitors. And so it's a great chance for us to just lift up Jesus and preach the gospel and worship him and celebrate him and, and uh, ask God to do great and mighty things. So 
Hope that you'll plan on being here and inviting a lot of people to come with you. We have these invite cards, so grab a big stack of them on your way out. They just, they're just business, and it's just a business card size. It says, Celebrate Jesus on one side, Easter at Longview Point. And on the back, it has the different service times for Easter weekend and a little bit of information about our church. So these are great ways, non-threatening ways, just invite somebody to Longview Point. So can't wait to see what God does. Now, if you're a, a regular here and you're physically able, remember what we're asking you to do on that weekend. We're asking you to park as far away from the building as you can get, all right? So if there's a, a spot that's real close to the building and there's a spot a long ways from the building, if you're physically able, we understand not everybody is, but if you're physically able, park way away from the building to provide the clo- closer spaces for our guests, for all the visitors that we expect, okay? And a little walk will do some good. All right? So uh, we just ask you to, to do that and uh, consider that. And then, and then when you're here for the services, look for new folks, new faces, and be friendly, shake some people's hands, and uh, get to know them a little bit. You may meet somebody that's a member of the church, and you didn't know it, but hey, that's okay. You, you've met a new brother or sister, amen? Or you meet somebody that's not a member of the church and, and they need to know that our church cares about them. So just, just, just uh, uh, be who you are because you are some of the best folks in the world and, and just love on folks that, that God sends our direction this Easter weekend. So a lot of things going on. Excited. Love Good Friday, Easter Sunday. The, the doctrines those days represent the, the cornerstone of our faith is what we're celebrating this weekend. Okay, turn to Judges, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges tells the story of the nation of Israel after they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. And after Joshua died, the people basically rebelled against God. And, and because they would rebel against God, God would allow a a foreign nation to come and overthrow them and oppress them. And the people would get desperate because they didn't like being oppressed and they would cry out to God and say, God, deliver us, help us. So God would raise up a judge, a leader, to basically lead them uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a military campaign against the oppressing nation. Uh, one of the famous judges you've heard of is Samson uh, and, and um, Gideon and, and others like that. And so that's the book of Judges details these cycles of disobedience. Israel would, would rebel against God. God would send judgment through an oppose, uh, oppressive nation. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge to deliver them. And then they'd turn away from God again. You see these cycles repeated over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Judges is a dark book. There's some, just some terrible stuff that happens in Judges. Just, it shows you the depravity of man and how wicked um, God's people had gotten. How they had turned their back to him, But in the midst of this, near the beginning of the book of Judges, there's this beautiful name of God revealed, uh, Jehovah Shalom. And the, the phrase Jehovah Shalom basically means the Lord is my peace. The Lord is my peace. Now, I'll just be honest with you, this is kind of a timely message for, uh, for, for me, for our church. We have a lot of hurting families in our church right now. Um, people that have sick loved ones, people that have lost loved ones, and it's just a hard time. And, and so this, this idea that the Lord is our peace is a timely idea for us to consider. Matter of fact, I'll be honest with you, I skipped over one to get to this one. So 
I skipped over the Lord sanctifies. We'll get back to the Lord who sanctifies. We'll get back to that in the coming week. But I wanted to go ahead and do the Lord is my peace because I think I needed it this week. So, so we're going to study Jehovah uh, Shalom and uh, see what that name means, what that name is all about. So look there in Judges chapter 6. I'll show you the verse that mentions this name of God. And then I'll go back and tell you a little bit about the story to help you to understand the context. It says in Judges 6 verse 24, Then Gideon, a judge, got it raised up, built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Shalom, or Jehovah Shalom, or Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the uh, Abezrites. And so uh, here, Gideon, in recognition of something God has done, builds an altar, a place of worship, and he names it uh, a name of God. Yahweh, Shalom, Jehovah Shalom, if you want to use that pronunciation. The Lord is peace, the Lord is my peace. That's what that name means. Now, let's just talk about the word Shalom a little bit. If you were to go to modern-day Israel and walk down the streets, you would probably hear someone using this as a, a, a greeting or a way of parting. Uh, shalom. Uh, which is just the Hebrew word for peace. And the word shalom is, a, is a, a complex word. There's a lot of meaning packed into that word shalom. When you and I think about peace, we usually just think about an absence of conflict, right? It's when we think about, you know, like you think you have two nations that are at war, and they come to a peace accord or a peace treaty. There's an absence of conflict. There's, there's peace there. But there's so much more built into that word shalom Concerning peace. The word shalom carries with it the idea of wholeness. Wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. As a matter of fact, let me show you this. Turn back just a couple of books to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Right before the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Verse 6, this is the Lord giving commandments uh, through Moses to the elders of, of Israel, uh, to the people of Israel. Verse 6 says, you shall build the altar uh, of the Lord your God of uncut stones. Now that word uncut is the word shalom, of shalom stones. The idea there is a stone that is whole, a stone that has not been chipped on or cut on or carved on. It's a, it's a whole stone. That's the word that's used over here in Judges 6. The Lord is shalom. The Lord is peace. It's the idea of wholeness, completeness. That's, that's the, the basic meaning of the word. Now, as you look at the unfolding use of this word in the Old Testament, this wholeness includes things like health, security, well-being, absence of conflict, which is the way you and I commonly understand the word, and salvation. It's a wholeness. It's being saved from something, delivered from something. Shalom can refer to the state of the individual. It can refer to the relationship of man to man. It can refer to nation to nation. It can refer to the relationship of God and man. And so there's many different ways this word shalom is used. But we go back to Judges 6 where we see this name of God revealed. We see some some needs in our lives, some reasons we might need to know God as Jehovah Shalom. So I want to talk to you just for a few moments about our need for peace. Why do we need Shalom? Why do we need wholeness? Why do we need security, well-being, absence of conflict, uh, 
inner, um, uh, inner tranquility? Why do we need that? Why do we need peace in our lives? What, what calls for peace in our lives? Let me give you four things, and these come from this text in Judges chapter 6. First of all, overwhelming circumstances call for peace. Overwhelming circumstances call for peace. Now look in Judges 6, verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. So that's the cycle cycle of disobedience. The people of Israel rebelled against God, and so God sent the Midianites to oppress them as an act of judgment. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So the people had to flee from their towns and flee from their villages and flee from their cities to the wilderness. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkeys. So these rival nations would come attack them right when they're harvest was ready and they would destroy the harvest they would destroy the animals that they were counting on they would not leave them they would take them it says in verse 5 they would come up with their livestock and their tents they would come in like lo- uh, come in like locusts for number both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it so Israel was brought very low notice that very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not obeyed me. Then... The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. So notice here we are introduced to Gideon, and Gideon's trying to save uh, the wheat uh, from the destructive hand of the Midianites. And notice the Midianites are firmly in control of Israel. They are oppressing them. They're destroying their crops. They're like locusts, the Bible says. And they brought Israel very low. Gideon was living in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. Now, these circumstances were there as a result of God's judgment. But we don't know if Gideon was contributing to the sin of Israel here. It seems like God uh, raised him up out of the, 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 the mire that Israel was in. So maybe he wasn't, he wasn't directly responsible. It wasn't his actions that brought this judgment on Israel. It was somebody else's actions. And yet, Gideon and his family are living in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. And Gideon needed peace. And if you and I live long enough, we're going to encounter overwhelming circumstances. Because life is difficult, right? It's, it's difficult. And if you live long enough, you're going to get to a place where circumstances are, are more than you can handle. Bigger than you can 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 wrap your mind and heart around. You're going to face overwhelming circumstances. Uh, just this week, I was driving down the road, and I was listening to a song on K-Love, and the song basically says something to this effect. God will never give you more than you can take or than you can bear. And I said, that's not true. That's not true at all. 
there are regular times in our lives that, that, that we'll encounter something that's bigger than we can handle. Which is why we need God, right? I mean, if we never had more than we could bear, then we wouldn't need God to bear it, right? We could bear it in our own strength. And so, um, so this idea that, that God will never allow anything overwhelming to come into your life is not a biblical idea, okay? Um, he helps us bear things. He, he helps us with those. But in our own strength, we can't, we can't deal with the overwhelming circumstances of life. And so Gideon was living in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. He needed some peace. He needed Jehovah Shalom. He needed to know that God would help him and bring wholeness into his life in the midst of these overwhelming circumstances. You say, wait, I've never had overwhelming circumstances before. Well, just keep living. All right, just keep living. They'll come. They'll come, and, it, and, and things could change with just a phone call. You're just cruising along, everything's going good, and just... One phone call and everything can change. I mean, instantly. Because we live in a fallen world. Life is hard. We, we, we are overwhelmed often by the, by the things we encounter, just like Gideon. Secondly, unanswered questions call for peace. Unanswered questions call for peace. Look what happens here in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if, notice this question here, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Notice the why question. You ever ask the why question to God? Why this? Why that? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to this person? I mean, if we're honest, we've all had those why questions uh, creep up in our heart and our mind. That's just who we are. Things happen that we don't understand. Things happen that we can't figure out. Things happen that are too big for us. It's a very natural reaction for us to say, why? And, and get in here, ask a why question. He says, if, if the Lord's with us, if you're going to help us, then why has all this happened to us? Obviously, you're not with us, God. He's asking the why question. And then look at the next question. And where are all his miracles which your fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? God, it seems like you're not present. It seems like you're not helping us. I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know where you are. I can't, I can't see your work. It seems like you're very distant from me. You ever had that, that experience with God? It seems like God is distant. It seems like God is far away. Gideon was experiencing the same thing. Then he asked a third question. Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of uh, Midian. So, Gideon's saying, I don't understand what's happening. And he's asking these questions to the angel of the Lord. He's asking these questions to God. And, and these are big questions. These are real questions. And they're questions that, that weren't necessarily answered at this point. And, and you and I, if we're honest, encounter things that cause questions. And most of the time, because God is God and we're not, and God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Most of the time, the questions we have don't ever get answered, honestly. When it comes to tragedy, trial, hurt, pain, we may wonder why, and we may net listen, we may never know this side of heaven, why things happen. And we've got to be able to live with that. That's what faith's all about, right? We live by faith, not by sight. Even if we can't figure things out, even, even if we don't know why things are happening, we know we can still trust God. Think about Job. It's interesting to note, that God never tells Job why he's suffering. You read the entire book, and he never explains to him the first two chapters of what we've all read. We know why Job suffered, remember? 
Job was a blessed man. God blessed him. He was a righteous man. He loved his family. He served as a priest for his family. He was a, an honest businessman. He was thriving. And Satan comes into the Lord's presence and he says, the only reason that Job is faithful to you is because you've blessed him so much. If you take away Job's blessing, he'll curse you to your face. He'll turn his back on you. And so the Lord allows Satan to afflict Job to, to show Satan in a watching world this truth. That even if you lose everything, you can still say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job lived that out. And it was painful. And it's, it's gut-wrenching to watch Job go through the suffering. But at the end of the book, when God speaks to Job, he never goes back and explains to him chapters 1 and 2. He just says, hey, remember who I am. I'm the one that created everything. I'm the one that controls Leviathan and, and Behemoth. I'm the one that's in control. of you. you don't, don't worry about why, just remember who's in charge. Trust me. He never explained to Job what happened. And so we've got to, we've got to get to a place of spiritual maturity that says, it's okay if I never get an answer to the why question. Because we probably won't. You may have people that try to answer the why question for you, but they're just grasping at straws, right? We say some crazy stuff sometimes to people trying to answer the why questions. Sometimes it's better just to be quiet and just say, I love you, I'm here for you. That's all I got, <laughs> right? Because when we start trying to, we start trying to speak for God, we can say some really foolish and sometimes very hurtful things. Sometimes we've got to understand, we don't have the answers uh, that people are looking for, and we've got to just trust God. And so Gideon had some very real, uh, really, re very real questions, some unanswered questions, and he needed some peace in the midst of that. Why, why, why? Why is this happening? He needed God to give him wholeness in the midst of those unanswered questions. Third, our inadequacies call for peace. Our inadequacies call for peace. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. He's asking God these questions. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So he's saying, okay, you're the answer to your question. I'm about to deliver you from the Midianites, and, and you're going to be the one that leads Israel in this military conquest. And look what Gideon says. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So he says, Okay, your job is to lead Israel to a military victory over the Midianites. I'm going to help you out. Go. And Gideon says, Time out. Wait a minute. From a small tribe the youngest in the family, surely you want someone else to be the general of the army. Maybe someone that's even fought in the army before. <laughs> surely somebody else needs to do this. And he's feeling here his utter inadequacy. And listen, apart from God, we are utterly inadequate, aren't we? That's why God has to keep telling him, you know, I'm going to be with you. I, I'll be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. He doesn't say, you're going to defeat Midian. He says, I'll be with you and you'll defeat Midian. That's what he says. He needed God's presence, God's strength. But getting here is experiencing his own sense of inadequacy, his utter inadequacy for the tasks at hand. And you know, sometimes when we think about our callings in life, you know, what we're called to do, you know, we're called to, to be, a, you know, a, if you're married, a godly spouse. 
and you know, love our spouse and put them ahead of our own self and put them on a pedestal and honor them and love them and provide for them and, and watch out for them. We're called to be a godly spouse. And, 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 and then if we got kids, we're called to be you know, faithful, Christ-honoring parents that train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then we've got jobs and, and careers and callings. And, and so you have grandkids. And, and we have all these callings in our life, all these things that, that we're responsible for. And they're big things. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, when it comes to our family, people's souls. And we're talking about eternity and, and, and all these, these huge things that we're responsible for. And when we think about that, it can be downright frightening. Because we know how inadequate we are, right? We know how weak we are. But listen to me. Understanding your inadequacy is okay because it always moves you towards the Lord's strength. As a matter of fact, if you get too confident, you're headed for trouble. So our inadequacies call for peace. When we realize life is too big for me, I can't handle it on my own, we need peace. We need some help. We need God to get in the middle of that and give us shalom. Our inadequacies call for peace. Fourth. Discerning the Lord's will calls for peace. Discerning the Lord's will calls for peace. Look in verse 17. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here till I come back to you and bring you an, my offering. You bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon goes in and prepares a young goat, unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of the uh, Lord, uh, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. The angel of the Lord put out an end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the, of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. So what's happening here? Gideon is trying to discern God's will. I mean, God already told him, but now he's saying, Are you sure this is what you want me to do? And he goes through this test, he goes in and gets the, 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 the bread and the goat and, 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 and asks God to show him that this is really what he wants him to do. This is not the last time we're going to see Gideon ask for a sign. As a matter of fact, Gideon is well known for asking for the sign of the fleece. Remember that story? He puts out a fleece, and if it's wet in the morning and all the ground around is dry, then I'll know that it's you speaking to me. And he goes out, and it's, it's wet, and everything's dry. He says, okay, God, well, if you're really speaking to me, then I'm going to do it again. And if I come out and it's dry and all the ground around it is wet, then I'll know that it's you. And he's putting God to a test. But what, what Gideon's trying to do here in chapter 6, and over in the end of chapter 6, is he's trying to discern God's will. And that is not easy. It is not easy to discern God's will, is it? He wanted some assurances. This is what God wanted him to do. And you and I, we come to crossroads in life where we want some assurances. God, tell me which direction to go. And it is not an easy thing to discern God's will. The first time I ever heard the concept of a fleece, I was, or someone using this idea of a fleece, was I was, uh, I was, uh, just started pastoring, and, a, and another older pastor in Florida asked me to come in and do a revival. And so uh, I went in to do the revival for him, and, and he, he, during the day we would, what he, we would do what he called beating the bushes. I don't know if you know what that means. He, we'd go riding around all day visiting folks in his church and asking them to come back to the revival that night. So by the time you get to the revival, you're exhausted, but that's a whole other story. Um, 
But we drive all, we drove, I mean, we're in the country too. We're driving dirt roads all day long, driving, knocking on doors, running from dogs. It was crazy. But, but, but I remember him telling me about one of the churches that called him to come, to come preach. And he said, he said, I fleeced God. I told God if uh, we had a 100% vote, that I knew God was calling us to that church. That was, his, that was his way. He was discerned God's will. That if everyone said yes, he knew God was calling him to be the pastor of uh, the church. He says, is that right or wrong? The answer is, I don't know. All right? It seems that uh, Gideon used the fleece as an as a, 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 a instrument of doubting God. God already told him what to do. He's still going to use this fleece to kind of get some reassurance or whatnot. So I don't know that... Uh, that Fleecing God is always the best way to discern God's will. So, so what is the best way to discern God's will? I mean, could you do that? God honor that and show you? Yeah, maybe. But what is the best way to discern God's will in our life? Well, if you, if you go and, and type in on Amazon.com, type in God's will books, you'll get a whole list of books that tell you how to discern God's will. And there are all different ways, all different kinds of writings, all different views about how to discern God's will. And I got into a, a, a kick one year where I was reading all these books. I was reading as much as I could about discerning God's will, reading these different books and different approaches and different views and, and all that. And some made it very cut and dry, and some, you know, it was, it was a little bit more mysterious. And, and, and here's the conclusion I came to. There is no hard and fast formula to discern God's will. There's just not. I mean, I would prefer... When I get into difficult situations and, and have to make difficult decisions, I would prefer handwriting on the wall. But I only saw that one time in the Bible. Does it not seem to be the normative way that God works? I mean, wouldn't you like to just God just write on the wall for you? Wouldn't that make it easy? But listen to me. If God wrote it on the wall, we wouldn't seek Him, would we? We wouldn't pray. We wouldn't get in the Word. We wouldn't seek to walk with Him. And we wouldn't pursue Him. There's something about the mystery of God's will that makes us more dependent upon God and brings us to a place where we walk with Him more and seek Him more and, and, and lean on Him more. If God just wrote it on the wall, we would just wait for the handwriting, right? Instead of really seeking God's face and, and, and digging in the Bible and saying, what biblical principles are here that apply to this decision I have to make? What, what, how does my worldview need to be more biblical to address this decision I need to make? What's the wise thing to do here? And, and we, instead of working real hard at... at, at at discerning uh, the right thing to do, we would just sit with our arms folded waiting for the handwriting on the wall. And so, God's will can be mysterious sometimes. Sometimes He can do something in your life because He's God and He can do whatever He wants to do. He can do things to make it crystal clear. There's some times in my life where God made it crystal clear to me what I was supposed to do. I mean, it, I mean there's no doubt in my mind. There are other times I had big decisions to make and it wasn't very clear. I, it just wasn't clear. And I just did the best I, I knew how to do. Discerning the Lord's will is, is not an easy thing. And we all, have to, we all have, to, have to deal with that at some point in our lives because we all have decisions to make about life. And so in the midst of discerning God's will, when you come to crossroads in life and you're trying to sit, decide what to do next or if you should do this or if you should not do this, that's, you need God's peace in that. You need to know that God's in control and God's with you and God's going to help you uh, with the decision that you make and the direction that you go. And so, difficult decisions, discerning the Lord's will, call for peace. And so, basically what I want you to get from this is that life is hard. We need God's peace. We need God's help. We need some shalom. We need some wholeness. Because life can chew you up and spit you out. Can I get an amen on that? Alright. So, 
How do we get it, Wade? How do we attain peace? How can we have shalom in our life? How can we walk with this sense of wholeness in our lives? Let me give you uh, some thoughts here, four thoughts that will help you to answer that question of how you attain peace. Number one, peace is a gift from God for those that have a relationship with Him. That's what you need to understand first of all. Peace is a gift from God for those that have a relationship with Him. The peace of God is not for everybody. It's only promised to those that know Him. Turn over to Psalm 85 with me. Look in verse 8. Psalm 85, verse 8. The psalmist here says, I will hear what God the Lord will say. For he will speak peace, shalom, to his people, to his godly ones. Notice this. This speaking of peace from God is for a specific group of people, to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They come together for God's people. Truth springs from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him. Will make his footsteps into a way. So all these blessings, truth and peace and righteousness, all these things are gifts for God's people, for those that know him. So if you want God's peace, if you want shalom, you've got to know him. It's not an automatic thing, all right? Not everybody gets the peace of God. Not everybody gets to experience wholeness. It only comes from those that know the one true God. Uh, which brings us to Isaiah chapter 9. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 is a passage that's read often at Christmas time. It's a prophecy of the Messiah. God was going to send a Messiah that would be a Savior for the world. He would come and die for the sins of all humanity so that if anyone, regardless of ethnicity or background or language, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they will be saved. So this... This Messiah is described. He would be born. He would be a child. It says, for a child, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, look at this title, Prince of what? Peace, Shalom, Wholeness. And so the secret to experiencing God's peace is not really a secret. If you want God's peace, you've got to know the Prince of Peace. The one who makes peace available, Jesus Christ. He's the way to have a relationship with God. One commentary says this, The presence of shalom in any of these contexts was not considered ultimately as the outcome of human endeavor, but as a gift or blessing of God. If, if you go to um, bookstores, you'll find self-help sections. And, and there are rows and rows of self-help books and they're basically designed to help you to figure out in your life how to have peace and happiness. 
If you do this, if you do that, if you do this, you do that, if you focus on this, focus on that, then you'll get peace. But the, the biblical principle is this. Peace is not something you attain or earn or achieve. Peace is a gift that comes from God for those that know Him. You've you got to know Him. So the presence of shalom in any of these contexts was not considered ultimately as the outcome of human endeavor, but as a gift or blessing of God. It is not surprising, therefore, to find peace tied closely to the Old Testament notion of covenant. Shalom was the desired state of harmony and communion between two covenant partners. Its presence signifying God's blessing in the covenant relationship and its absence signifying the breakdown of that relationship due to Israel's disobedience and unrighteousness. So if you want peace from God, you've got to know God in a personal way. You can only know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is called the Prince of Peace. Ken Hemphill writes, The fundamental idea behind the word shalom is wholeness in one's relationship with God. Shalom defines a harmony of relationship. That's the primary meaning of shalom, a wholeness in a relationship between man and God, those that know him. Now, here's why this is such a big deal. Wade, why do we need God to uh, have peace? Why do we need Jesus to get to God? Well, here's the deal. Because of our sin, this is number two, we are enemies of God. Because of our sin, we are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Now, a lot of people don't like to think of themselves as enemies of God. But think about it like this. There, there are only two categories of people in the world. Followers of Christ who are saved, that's one, and the other is enemies of God. See, God is, is infinitely holy, right? His holiness knows no boundaries. He is perfect and righteous in all of his ways. And when we sin against a holy God, and we all have, we all do, right? We are in rebellion against the high king of heaven. It's like cosmic treason. It's like spitting in God's face. When the God of the universe, who is perfectly holy, says do this and we don't do it, it is utterly disrespectful to Him. It, our sin separates us from God. Or when God says, don't do this, and we do it, that sin separates us from God. The Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sin separates us from God. All have sinned, Romans 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us have sinned against God, which makes us His enemies. So you might say, we are at conflict with God. We're at enmity with God. And so if we're ever going to have a relationship with Him, we've got to have peace. We've got to be reconciled to Him. Which leads me to number three. We enter into peace with God only through His Son. I've already mentioned that, but let me just show you this in the Bible. We enter into peace with God only through His Son. Turn to Romans chapter 5, New Testament. great verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes here, Therefore, having been justified, saved, declared righteous by faith, we're saved not because we earn it, not because we do a bunch of good things, we're saved by placing our faith in the one that paid it all on our behalf, by placing our faith in Christ. So therefore, having been justified by faith, We have, here it is, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You will never have peace with God, an absence of hostility between you and God until you know Jesus Christ. Peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look what it says down in verse 10. It says, for if, we, if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the only way we're reconciled to God, we're enemies of his, only way that we're reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ, who paid for our sin and washes it away, so now we can come to God and have a relationship with him. So we enter into peace with God only through his son. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. And so, if you want to have wholeness, shalom, peace in your life, you've got to know God in a personal way. And you only know God in a personal way through His Son, Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to peace in this life. People are desperately looking for it, but there are no other roads that lead to peace. The only road that leads to peace is following Jesus Christ. All right? Now, let me give you this. This fourth thing to think about. After we have peace with God, we have a relationship with Him, we're no longer His enemies, we're now His friends, okay? After we have peace with God, we constantly need the peace of God through the trials of life. So we have peace with God, relationship, He's ours, we're His, that'll never change. But then functionally, in our day-to-day living, we need the peace of God in our lives as we encounter trials. So how do we, subject, objectively, we always have peace with God, that'll never change. But subjectively, how do we experience the peace of God through the trials? That feeling, that experience of wholeness, that, that feeling, that experience of shalom. Well, let me give you two thoughts here. First of all, The peace of God comes through perspective. Through perspective. Let me say it like this. It really does matter what you believe. What you believe about life and death and sin and salvation and eternity and heaven and hell, it really does matter. And if you don't have those things nailed down, you won't have the the right perspective to experience peace in this life. Because you don't don't have the doctrinal, theological, biblical framework to handle trials. You don't know how to process it. Because you don't know where all this is headed. And so what you believe really does matter. You have to have the right perspective. Let me show you the words of Jesus over in John chapter 14. I love this passage. Look in John 14 with me. Jesus is going to tell us how to functionally, daily experience the peace of God. We have peace with God that will never change, but how do we experience the peace of God through trials? John 14, 1, he's talking to his disciples here. This is before the cross. And he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what, what, uh, what remedy does Jesus give his disciples to deal with their troubled hearts? Belief. 
What's Jesus say? Don't be troubled because something, something is really about to happen. I'm about to go to heaven. And, and when I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place, I'm not doing it in vain. I want to come back and take you there one day. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about a, a life of, of joy and, and peace and blessing and love and the presence of God that's on the other side of this, this hard life in which we live now. So his antidote to worry and, and to, to troubled hearts is, hey, believe in heaven. Believe I'm going there. Believe I'm going to come back and get you. It really does matter what we believe. Now, you know me. I love, I love new music. I love old music. Uh, I love the newest stuff out there. I love the oldest stuff out there. Uh, I love Chris Tomlin. I like George Beverly Shea. I mean, I like it all. I just like Christ-centered music. Uh, but I have seen a trend. If, if you look at a lot of the, the, the older hymns of the faith, which I love, grew up singing those hymns, a lot of them had sort of a uh, kind of a buildup in them. Like they would start talking about our sin and need of a Savior. Then they'd kind of go and talk about the cross, you know, maybe what Jesus did for us. And then maybe from that line they go to walking with Jesus through the difficulties of this life. And then, and then like the fourth or fifth, you know, uh, stanza, if you sang all the stanzas, which we did well, Sometimes we did. Was about heaven. They would build up to this crescendo of heaven, of, of knowing that there's heaven waiting for us beyond this life. And if there is one thing I see in some of the contemporary music is there's not a great emphasis on heaven. Some songs, some artists, yes, but, but I see that I see that 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 hope in the future, uh, that hope in eternity. In the arms of Jesus, I, I don't see that same emphasis in some of the newer music. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see more emphasis on heaven because it matters what we believe. Jesus says, if, if you don't want your hearts troubled, believe in heaven. I'm going there. I'm going to come back and bring you there one day, right? That's what he says. Let me show you what else he says. Look over in John 14, uh, verse 27. Same thing. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, here's, I'm giving you peace. I'm going, but I'm going to come back and get you. He's helping them to understand they need to believe in eternity and have the right perspective Life it does not just consist of our, you know, short span on this earth. There is something glorious beyond the grave. Amen? This world, this, listen, this world is not our home. We are just, the Bible calls us pilgrims, sojourners, aliens. We're just passing through. Our home is in heaven. And if you have that perspective, it'll help you to deal with the trials in the here and now. It really does matter what you believe. Look over in chapter 16 of John, verse 33. John 16, verse 33. Jesus had been teaching them. Chapter 14, 15, 16. Wonderful passages. John 14 is about him going to heaven and, and, and the Holy Spirit coming. John 15 is the whole passage about abiding in Christ. I'm the vine, you are the branches. John 16 is more about the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Just wonderful teaching. Look what he says in verse 33. 
These things, all these, these things I've taught you, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. To say, I've taught you these things so you'll believe the right stuff and have peace in the midst of trials. Your perspective really does affect whether or not you have peace. Whether you experience the peace of God in your life. If you don't, if you don't cling to the great doctors of the faith, if you're not growing in your knowledge of, of biblical reality, then you're going to struggle experiencing peace in your life. You're going to be overwhelmed by life. But if you'll get a hold of the fact that God has rescued us in His Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died to wash all of our sins away, and because of that, we have a relationship with God and we trust Christ that will never be broken. That relationship will never change. And when you realize that Jesus Christ, on early on a Sunday morning, really did walk out of the tomb, He defeated death itself. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? If you realize that those who know Christ will spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus in His presence forever and ever and ever and ever, and, and nothing can touch your life, if you believe that, that matters, right? It matters. No matter what this world throws at you, it's going to throw some stuff at you. No matter how hard it gets, we build our lives, we build our hope on eternal Biblical realities and truth. It really does matter what we believe. These doctrines are not just things we talk about, sing about, and just, you know, just to gather and have something to discuss. No, these are, these, this is everything. This is life for us. The fact that we have hope in Jesus Christ. And so, the peace of God comes through perspective. I like Isaiah 26.3. It says... Uh, God keeps the one in perfect peace, keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. When our mind is stayed on Christ, when our mind is stayed on the Lord, when our mind is stayed on him and, and his word, then, then God keeps that kind of person in perfect peace. Peace of God, God comes through perspective. Now, I want to just be very simplistic to apply this to your life. If you want peace in your life, read your Bible. I'm serious. I mean, there is nothing like reading your Bible to give you functional peace in your day-to-day living. Just to remind yourself of the great realities of Christianity, the great realities of our faith, just to read those things and, and have your faith built up and strengthened is amazing to experience. Read your Bible. If you're, if you're struggling with peace, get into the Word. There's no better way to experience peace than, than having your perspective uh, broadened by the Bible. All right? Secondly, the peace of God comes through prayer. The peace of God comes through prayer. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. You've heard this passage before, but oh, it's so good. So practical. So helpful. Paul writes to the church in Philippi under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord, and always again, I will say, rejoice. You say, Wade, sometimes I don't feel like rejoicing. You ever been in a place in your life you don't feel like rejoicing? Anybody, raise your hand if you've ever been there. We all have, right? I don't feel like rejoicing. Life's too hard, this hurts too much, I'm a little ornery, or whatever. 
I don't feel like rejoicing. What do you do when you don't feel like rejoicing? What do you feel like, what do you do when life has gotten too big for you? When, when circumstances are overwhelming and all you experience is, is anxiety and fear and worry. Well, look what Paul says in verse 6. He addresses it. He says, be anxious in nothing or for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, let me tell you what Paul's saying here. He's saying when you experience anxiety, and, and over in Proverbs, the Bible says that anxiety is a weight. It weighs down the heart of man. If you've ever been anxious about something, you know it, it, it weighs on you, doesn't it? When you feel anxiety, when you feel worry, he says, take that anxiety and turn it to a prayer. Okay, take that anxiety and turn it to a prayer. Wait, how do I deal with anxiety? You take whatever you're anxious about and you talk to God about it. It's that simple. God, I'm anxious about my bills. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm weighed down. I, I can't stop thinking about it. It's troubling my heart. Uh, and, and I'm tired of living this way. God, give me wisdom with my finances. Take this anxiety away from me. Uh, God, I, I need you in this. And you just take the anxiety and you turn it to a prayer request. What happens when you do that? Look what he says in the next verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses... All comprehension, it's beyond figuring out, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a tremendous truth. If you have anxiety, and you take that anxiety and you'll pray about it. You'll turn it into a prayer. You'll talk to God about what's troubling you. The Bible says God will take that anxiety off of you and he'll replace it with peace. That'll guard your heart. It'll guard your mind and change your perspective. And you can live in functional peace. You have peace with God through Christ. And now, through prayer, through perspective, you can experience the peace of God in your life. It's, it's miserable to be anxious. It really is. I, I hate that feeling. The other day, I, was, I, I can't remember what it was. But I just was, I kept thinking about something. I was anxious about something. And, and I just, it was just a miserable feeling. I said, God, I'm, just, I don't, I'm tired of living like this. Would you just take it off of me? I'm just... I don't want to think about this anymore. I don't want to wring my hands about this anymore. I'm just going to give it to you. And I don't even remember it, so it worked. All right? And he takes that, he takes that anxiety, and he replaces it with peace. It's much better to live with peace. Now, he doesn't say, be anxious for nothing, pray about it, and I'll take all your troubles away. Doesn't say that, does he? Well, I wish he would have said that, right? Doesn't say that. He just promises that your heart and your mind will be guarded with God, His peace in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the trial, as you journey towards your final destination, which is heaven, where you'll leave all these troubles behind. And so, we say, wait, how do I functionally, daily, practically experience the peace of God? Perspective, grow in your knowledge of the great faith, the great faith of, uh, the great uh, doctrines of our faith, the biblical doctrines of our faith. And then pray. When you feel anxious, you turn to a prayer request, and God will replace that anxiety with peace. It really is that simple. I mean, it really is that simple. Just turn it to a prayer request and see what God... I've seen God do this in my life over and over again. Quick prayer, or maybe a longer prayer, and God just replaces it with peace. Over and over again. You may have to do it several times a day, because that, that anxiety keeps, keeps sneaking back into your heart. Anxiety's sneaky, isn't it? Keeps sneaking back into your heart. You may have to, it may be a chance for you just to glorify God again by just turning it into a prayer request and letting him replace that anxiety with his 
peace. And I'm telling you, his peace, it really is beyond comprehension. He can't understand it. And can I tell you this? Your, your friends or co-workers or neighbors or family members that may not know the Lord, when they see you walking through difficulty, when they see you walking through overwhelming circumstances with, a, with an unexplainable peace, I'm telling you, that, that gets their attention faster than anything. I mean, that really gets folks' attention. They see you living in peace. How can they have peace in the midst of the turmoil in their life? The answer is Jesus. Only through Jesus can I have that kind of peace. And so, Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. And we can experience that peace through Jesus Christ and through a daily walk, reading the Word, talking to Him, giving our anxiety to Him. We can live with God's inexpressible peace in our lives. His Shalom.